Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm excited that you're here. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We have two more weeks in the gospel of Matthew today. And then next week on the 22nd, we will wrap up our time in this uh, wonderful book of the Bible. I've enjoyed it immensely studying God's word with you, walking through the life of Jesus, hearing and seeing his miracles and his teachings, uh, and, and knowing him as the Messiah, the, the son of God. Um, just to let you know of kind of where we're headed in the, uh, in the summer months, um, and we'll, we'll get kind of a bigger picture of this later on, but in the summer months, we're going to go through the, the first letter to the Thessalonians. So first Thessalonians is where we're going to be uh, in the summer months. And then in the fall semester, we're going to kick off into the book of Ephesians. So that's where we're headed as far as Sunday mornings are concerned. But for now, Matthew chapter 27, we're going to start in verse 27 and go all the way through the end of the chapter. So today uh, we are thrilled to get to recognize some of our graduating seniors. We'll do that at the end, uh, however. So we're going to do this on the front end and then recognize our graduates on the, on the back end. So just be prepared for that. Today in our text, we come to the great triumph and great tragedy of human history, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And Matthew in his gospel is setting us up for the wonders of the resurrection in chapter 28, his last chapter. But there's no resurrection without death. You can't rise from the grave unless you've been put in the grave. So this morning, we're going to take our cues from the Apostles' Creed, uh, something we studied together almost two years ago, which is wild to think about that it's been that long. Uh, but there's a line in the Apostles' Creed that says uh, that Jesus was crucified, he died, and was buried. So when we think about uh, who is Jesus and what did Jesus accomplish, uh, Christians for centuries have confessed a lot of things, but they have confessed these three things. He was crucified, he died, and was buried. All three of these are massively important. And in these three uh, lines from the creed, and that we'll see in our text this morning, we will see if we have eyes to see the glory of God. So let me pray for us, and then we will launch into our text this morning. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we're so thankful that we get to gather together as the people of God this morning to hear from you. When we open your word, we hear you speak. And Lord, I pray that you might have all of our hearts um, captivated this morning and attentive to your good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the great cost of redemption. It costs the death of the Son of God. It cost his life that he was mocked, shamed, beaten, tortured, killed, buried, so that we might escape your wrath, so that we might not have your judgment before us, but your blessing. So Lord, I pray this morning as we dive into Matthew 27, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you'd help me to teach with clarity, with power, with authority, and that we all would come away from our time together more in love with you, with grateful hearts, praising you, worshiping you for who you are and what you've done. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read together Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. 
And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, that compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So our first stop on our journey this morning is that Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified. And notably, in our text this morning, what we just read, the only thing Matthew says about the actual crucifixion is almost hidden away in verse 35. And when they had crucified him. That's all, that's all Matthew tells us about the actual act of Jesus being nailed to a wooden cross and lifted up for all to see him in his shame. Matthew intends for us to focus not on the physical pain of Jesus, but on the shame and the mockery that Jesus receives from both Jews and Gentiles. In this scene, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the rejected one. He's the one that no one wants. He's the one whom the Jews mock and the Gentiles mock. Jesus stands in our first passage before the Roman soldiers and is subjected to cruel mockery. He's the innocent lamb of God, stripped, crowned with thorns, covered in a robe, given a stick to hold, and the soldiers bow before him, hailing him as the king of the Jews. Now we know, we know that there's an ironic coronation going on because Jesus really is the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. And as they coronate him into his shameful office, they then lead him to his place of rule. Now, after a coronation, usually a king or a queen would go sit on their throne. Instead, Jesus's throne would be a cross. So here at Golgotha, Jesus is stripped again and his clothes are divided among the soldiers. And then notice as we read the, the great irony of what's going on and what's being said about Jesus. He has a sign over his head as he's on that cross that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The, the crowds are mocking him, but they're calling him the Son of God, the King of Israel. 
They did not know what they were talking about. We also see the heaping on of shame. The crowds wagged their heads. They derided him. They ridiculed him. The criminals crucified with him even joined in to revile him as well. From the innocent and the guilty, from the Jew and the Gentile, from the person of power and the regular bystander, everyone is heaping on shame. And finally, we need to notice what the Jews were calling for. They were calling for a sign. Come down, King of Israel, and then we'll believe in you. Do what we want you to do, and then we'll believe in you. They want to see before they place their faith in Jesus. And near the end, there's this gut punch of a line. It's easy for us to miss. It's in verse 43. So look there with me. This is what the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, all of the Sanhedrin, all of the religious leaders of Israel, all of the ones who should have been those who carried the true doctrine of what it means to follow God. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. In other words, the people are saying, Yeah, Jesus, if God really loves you, he'll get you down off that cross. But you're still on it, aren't you? So what's that mean? We need to see here in this scene that in the midst of all the lies and wickedness pointed at Jesus, we can find ourselves in the same spot. Often we might feel rejected and alone. We too can feel like God isn't there in the middle of our heartache, in the middle of our pain. And it's easy to believe these kinds of things about ourselves, like God doesn't even love us or else he wouldn't allow us to be in this place to begin with. But the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus is proof positive for you and for me. That is not true. It's not true. The rejection from the world is not evidence of God's rejection at all. But it will take the cross and the death of Jesus for us to really see it. So we move from the crucifixion to Jesus' death. Let's pick up in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's about 12 o'clock noon, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour or 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion 
and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Jesus was crucified. Second stop, Jesus died. Jesus died. And we can tell in this passage, something cosmic is going on, right? It doesn't get dark at lunchtime. And yet here we are in the crucifixion of Christ at 12 noon, the sun obscures its light. For three hours, light is hidden. And then Jesus cries out the first line to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the word Eli gets misheard as a call for Elijah. We'll come back to Psalm 22 in a bit. They're curious, the crowd. They hear Jesus call, uh, but they're still mocking him, right? They're still ridiculing him. Oh, let's see what happens. He's obviously lost his mind. He's calling out for Elijah to come and rescue him. So let's see if that happens. But then Jesus cries out with a loud voice. And we know from the other gospels, what he cries out is, it is finished. And then Matthew says, he yielded up his spirit. That's a fascinating phrase. Matthew doesn't avoid the death of Jesus. He doesn't avoid the fact that Jesus really died. The son of God died. But in that phrase, Matthew keeps Jesus in control. Jesus yielded his spirit. He wants the reader to know death has come, but it does not win. At the death of Christ, some incredible things took place. First, the temple curtain was torn in two. Now that temple curtain is important because in the temple, there's the outer court and there's the inner court and there's the building of the temple. And then within the temple in the very middle, there's the Holy of Holies. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the place where the lamb was slaughtered on the day of atonement. This is the place where God's covenantal presence dwelled. And at the death of Jesus, the curtain that separated God's presence from everything else was ripped in half. Something is happening. God's covenantal presence is no longer limited to this one place. Next, the earth shook. Creation seems to be responding in some way to the death of Jesus. And right after that, it says, the tombs opened and some of the saints rose from the dead. Now, if that seems weird, it's because it is. Matthew's the only person who tells us that this happened. So you don't read that in any of the other gospels. And apparently they didn't make themselves known until after Jesus was raised. So so let's just be clear. That's admittedly a very odd passage that only Matthew tells us about. But the, the fact is, is that the death of the son of God triggered something. When Jesus said it is finished and yielded up his spirit, resurrection was the fruit of his work. For him and for all those in him. And so in this little phrase of the saints of old who put their faith in God that a Messiah would come. In this scene, we get a taste. We get a preview of what's to come. 
that through the work of Christ, death itself will be undone. And then we see this centurion, a Gentile, a Roman soldier, making this awe-filled statement. Truly, this was the Son of God. Students, if we want to get a clear picture of who Jesus is, we must look at the cross. Yes, we look at Jesus serving the least of these. We look at Jesus teaching with authority. We see Jesus performing great miracles and showing great compassion in his earthly ministry. All of these things are true. But if we want a clear picture of who Jesus is, we have to look at the cross. Here at the cross, the love of God and the justice of God meet. Here, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. And, as will be very important next week, we notice at the very end of this passage, who's still there? The disciples have fled. Peter has denied Jesus three times. Judas has hanged himself. But there were many women looking on from a distance. These women who surrounded Jesus' ministry watched it all. They were there. Now we know from another gospel that at least John, the apostle, is there. There's a scene in where Jesus speaks to his mother Mary and says, Behold your son, and tells John, Behold your mother. But for the most part, Matthew's not interested in showing you the, the faithfulness of the disciples that we know, the 12 men. He's interested in showing you these women never left. They did not fall away. So Jesus is crucified. Jesus died. And finally, Jesus is buried. So let's read verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we must remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Third stop this morning, Jesus was buried. We'll move quickly in this last section because it's really a preparation for next week when we get to the resurrection. And we need to take time to look at Psalm 22, which should be in our heads from now on when you read this story. You need to think about Psalm 22, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who followed Jesus, took his body and laid him in his own new tomb. Now, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9 when it says that he'll be buried among the rich in a borrowed tomb. 
The women remained mourning over Jesus until nightfall. So they, they lay him in this tomb and the Marys are there mourning over Jesus until nightfall when the Sabbath would begin. Jesus was sealed in this tomb with a heavy stone. It would seem that it's over. But the leaders wanted to make sure of it. So they devise a scheme on the Sabbath, no less. I mean, remember, this is Friday. The Friday night begins the Sabbath of the Passover. So on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders are going back to Pilate, scheming again to make sure that no one steals the body. And they have the gall to call Jesus an imposter. And that word is interesting because it can be translated imposter, but maybe your Bible translation has it as deceiver. So Matthew is, is cluing us into the, the whole irony of this passage, right? That, that, that the leaders are saying things that are true, but they don't think are true. Jesus is being exalted and lifted up as a king, but he's being exalted and lifted up as a criminal. And now the religious leaders are calling Jesus the deceiver. Everything is upside down in the story. Pilate agrees that a stolen body and resurrection hoax would not be in his best interest. Remember, Pilate is all about himself. He wants to make sure he's remaining in power, remaining in influence. So he dispatches a guard and then says one of the most laughable statements in all of the Bible. Go make it as secure as you can. As if this Roman guard is going to stop what's going to take place. They still believe that they're the ones in control. But Matthew is preparing us for what we know is coming on Sunday morning, the resurrection. In all of this, he's made references over and over to Psalm 22. So if you hold your place in Matthew, but flip back over to Psalm chapter 22. Perhaps you've never read this Psalm all the way through in connection with what we've just read. But I think as we read it, you'll start to recognize some things that we've heard and seen. Psalm chapter 22. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's easy for us to, to think that Jesus is making some kind of a, let me use a big word here, some kind of an ontological statement. And what I mean by that is, He's making a statement about the way things are. As if the Father and the Son who have eternally existed in the Godhead, loving and receiving love, glorifying and receiving glory for all eternity, unbroken, perfect, simple in their unity, perfect in their power, equal in their essence and glory. As if in this moment of great suffering, in this moment of bearing the wrath of sin, that somehow the Trinity itself is being threatened. And if we're not careful, we'll read that and think, man, something really crazy is going on theologically. And something crazy is going on, right? Jesus is bearing the sin of the world. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, I taught you the word synecdity? Right, man, I said, never going to give you up. Right, and all of you know that whole song, right? And we talked about how the part of something often can stand in for the whole. 
So let's, let's use maybe a hymn. Um, if you heard somebody say something like, um, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, right? That's all you have to hear, but you know that song. What song is that? It is well. It is well. So we know that the theme of that song is not God has left me and abandoned me in my suffering. But if all you heard was when sorrows like sea billows roll, I think, man, that's a terrible life. It's a lot of sorrow. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It's well with my soul. And the same is true with Psalm 22. So let's read together from verses 1 through 21. We're just, buckle up. We're going to read all this and, and think about what we just read. Think about the, the story of Jesus, his, his mockery, his crucifixion, his death. Listen, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Sound familiar? When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not saying God is not here. He is saying, just wait. Just wait. There will be times and even seasons in your life when you feel alone and hopeless and lost and rejected. And you need to see that Jesus has walked a similar path. And although his cry to his God in what must have felt like isolation and separation 
which must have been heart-rending. We know that this psalm is not about despair or defeat. It's about trusting in the faithful presence of God to do good as he always does. And we follow in the footsteps of Jesus when we lean into that promise, even if it brings us into the dust of death. So we keep reading. What are we waiting for? Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship Before him shall bow down all who go down into the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord in the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. But he rose on the third day. And if you put your trust in him, then the promise of resurrection is your promise as well. In this life, in brokenness, in sin, we will all walk through seasons of our life when we feel as though God is not there. And what the crucifixion of Jesus tells us is, it's okay to feel that way. And Jesus felt that way. It's okay to to go to God with your feelings of isolation, your feelings of separation, with your real hurt, with your real loneliness, with your real pain. It's not wrong to go to God and say, God, here I am. Here's my soul. I'm bearing that to you. I mean, Psalm 22 is in the Bible. I mean, sometimes we might read things like that and go, man, I don't know if I can pray that. It's God's word. I don't think it's going to surprise God for him to hear you say those things. And it's not, as we see in Christ, it's not a confession of some kind of lack of belief. It's a confession of what the world feels like. What my heart feels like. But when I pray God's word and when I remember the the cross of Christ, I remember not what I feel, but what I know. That God has not abandoned me. Just as he didn't abandon Jesus. God is not against me. He's with me. He's for me. And although I feel pain now, joy comes in the morning. Although my sorrows may last through the night, Resurrection is on the horizon. We need the death of Christ before we get to the resurrection. 
So we need to see the cross of Christ for what it is. Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. But next week, next week, the tomb is empty. Let me pray for you.